Spanking our children is one of the hardest things a loving parent must undertake in this world. It's a tough responsibility. I realize physical discipline is widely frowned upon, particularly by those who wield the greatest influence in our nation's media and education systems. Those so minded from everything that I can read and everything that I hear them say always equate spanking a child with abuse. And they cannot grasp the compatibility of physical discipline and love. There's just no concept putting those two together for them. Now, every genuinely loving parent agrees that spanking is practiced in abusive ways. We recognize that. But parents who administer abusive spankings are really not doing something hard. They're relieving their anger. It's quite easy to do. They're satisfying some sick pleasure or twisted sense of pride. But as a loving father... I sought to consistently, constructively, with pattern control, spank my children when they knowingly chose to disobey. And that is hard. I found no pleasure in it. My heart remains tender to the memory of that season of life now past. But I tell you what I did like And that was the hug that came at the end of it. Now, we have hard-headed kids, and I think they'll admit that. They got that from their mother. But I'll admit that my enthusiasm for the hug was usually way above theirs. I'll, I'll say that. But as a loving dad, I treasured that moment. The discipline was over. The lesson was learned for now. Come here. I love you. In an immeasurably greater sense, our God is such a father to his people. He loves us enough to warn us. But he is a God of absolute truth who will not permit his warnings to morph into lies and false threats. Eventually, he disciplines his people for their sin in order to steer us back onto the path of righteousness. But this is one thing we learn about our Heavenly Father in the pages of Scripture, and that is that he rejoices and treasures in the restorative hug. He is always bringing his people back The discipline is over. The lesson is learned for now. And he holds open arms and says, come here. I love you. I wonder, is this just wishful thinking? Is this just the kind of the image of God that we want to present? Is this uh, what we make up in our mind because it feels good? I don't think so at all. I think this is the truth that Scripture reveals about who God is over and over again. And it is a theme that plays out on a grand scale in a most unusual historical reversal that we read about in the book of Ezra. And we begin a series today through this book. Let's take a few minutes to understand the historical background. You might want to make your way there. We'll look at the end of 2 Chronicles and move into Ezra today. But the historical setting, this takes a little bit of time, but it's absolutely essential because as is true with all of Scripture, it is rooted in the historical realities of this world. As God rules the world sovereignly, it is always rooted in truth. But it is rooted also in the realities of historical events. As we look at the historical setting of Ezra, we note, first of all, the area of monarchy. You just have to have that concept in your mind, monarchy, thinking kings ruling Israel. Where do we find this information in Scripture? First and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. 
we have nearly 500 years of the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah. These books, as we know, record the repeated moral failures of the kings of God's people. Some kings did right, never ideally so. Many kings did that which was evil and broke covenant with God. They failed to call they failed their call to serve as the theocratic head of the chosen people. God had chosen them as king, and they were to represent him to the people and draw them into covenantal obedience. But over and over again, they obeyed the gods of the land, the pagan gods of the Canaanites, and followed their ways and led the people of Israel astray and led them to the place of disregarding the word of God And we see as the monarchy comes to an end, an utter mess, leaving us to long for an ideal king who would do it right. No one did. Failure after failure after failure. There were those who stood up for God and did right. But in the end, the monarchy crumbled in unfaithfulness to the Lord, leaving us again to long for a king of perfect righteousness kind of superimposed over monarchy is the theme of prophets, and the prophets came before and after monarchy, but they were very much a part of the life of the kings of Israel and the life of Israel during that season of of their history. But no single warning was sounded more often by God's prophets than the warning to stop serving false gods. Stop worshiping the idols of the Canaanites. Stop following their wicked adulteries and their practices, their vile worship. Stop burning your children in the fire. They were doing that in obedience to these gods. All gods destroy and tear down in the end. These gods were tearing down the Israelites and the prophets continue to say, stop it. Or God will pour out His just wrath upon you he poured out his wrath upon these peoples allowing you to take this land giving this land to you disciplining them and giving that blessing to you but now you're acting like they are god is a just god and he will not permit this to continue what was the result of the prophet's work second chronicles 36 verse 14 2 Chronicles 36, verse 14, all the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that He had made holy in Jerusalem. That is, they brought in false worship into the temple of God. Verse 15, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by His messengers because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising His words, scoffing at His prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against His people, until there was no remedy. Therefore He brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians as we know them, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God. They broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became the servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbath all the days that it lay desolate. It kept Sabbath. To fulfill 70 years. One in seven years to be given to the land for rest. It had not been followed. And so this discipline of the Lord falls.
And so we look then thirdly, by way of background, at the Babylonian captivity. We need to have this concept in mind. Israel's taken away to Babylon. There were a few people left back in the land, but for the most part, they're taken to Babylon. A life in Babylon was not all that bad for the Jews. They prospered there for the most part. God led them beside still waters and to green pastures in his discipline. But the real horror was not so much the suffering of the Israelites in Babylon as it was the fact that the temple lay in ruins. For 70 years, there was no central worship for Israel. God's glory that once resided there, that place now had been devastated and was not used. But the 70 years of discipline were now past. God's people had been sifted and purified in the fires of correction. And in a very different people now returns from Babylon to the promised land. A very different people compared to those who had been carried away from it seven decades earlier. And that brings us to the conquest of Cyrus, king of Persia. In 559, Cyrus inherited the throne of his father's small state of Anshan, near the Persian Gulf. This, I'll point over this direction. This may be a little difficult to see, but we see the Persian Empire at its start right here, just a small empire, and it was a subject state to the Median Empire, to Media that stretched in this, you see this color here on the map. So Cyrus takes over the kingdom of his father in 559. Ten years later, he conquers his overlord. And that gains him a great deal of land and power. So this now becomes the Persian Empire under the reign of Cyrus. In 547 B.C., just a couple of years later, he pushes all the way to the nation of Lydia and conquers there. So from the Aegean Sea, then comes back across and pushes even toward India, he controls a vast stretch of land. The other two major players we know are Egypt, and Babylon, and you can be sure they are sweating as they see this man with great military skill continue to knock off kingdoms. Now, this is no kidding around. About a hundred, we'll just generalize, but about a hundred and fifty years before this man was born, Isaiah named him and said that he would walk into these places and would take over without a fight. You don't just make that up 150 years before a person's born. But this amazing thing indeed happened. A century and a half after Isaiah's prophecy, Cyrus goes into Babylon, the great power of the day, and he walks into Babylon. We read of it earlier here today. It's like the iron bars melted in front of him. He took treasures in the darkness. What does that mean? It means that he walked, you don't put windows in banks, not where the money's stored, at least. He walked into those darkened places. And he took the money because Babylon opened the gates to him. It was, it was unbelievable that Babylon had fallen so early. And it was unbelievable that Cyrus came in and took over with such ease. But Nabonidus, the Babylonian king, had managed to so thoroughly alienate his people, the Babylonians threw open the gates. They welcomed Cyrus as a liberator just as Isaiah had prophesied. Now, as Isaiah prophesies that, you don't really know what he's talking about until after the event. Otherwise, many people would stand in line and fake it. The prophecy is somewhat subtle. It's a bit clouded by the, as, as you read it originally. But once the event takes place, it's quite clear this is the Cyrus. And this is the conquest. Now, that's all the background as we come to the book of Ezra today. And encounter here in the first verses a decree 
from Cyrus, king of Persia. What's he going to do? What is he going to say? How will he respond to God's people who are, in some sense, like a little mouse running around among the elephants? There's Babylon, there's Egypt, there's Persia, and then there's Israel. Devastated. It's temple in ruins. The walls broken down. Hardly anybody left. A fight just to keep it functioning against the wild animals and the invasion of weeds and time. How will this great king respond to this broken land? Ezra 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, at the mouth of the Lord, by the, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. That's not what anybody was expecting. Let's pick through this just for a few moments. The first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, is clearly, as has been indicated here historically, not his first year as king in any sense, but his first year as the king, the greatest king on earth, having conquered Babylon. In that year, 539, Cyrus fulfilled the prophetic word spoken by Jeremiah. No wonder Ezra could have said spoken by Isaiah, but he, all, but he says here by Jeremiah, He fulfilled the prophecies that Jeremiah foretold, perhaps concerning the 70 years of Babylonian captivity and Israel's return to the land. Jeremiah 29, verse 10, he says, Babylon will conquer. Israel will be there for 70 years, and that could be what's fulfilled. It might just be fulfilled what Jeremiah prophesied about the Babylonian Empire, chapter 31 of Jeremiah. There's a few options as to what it means that he fulfilled what Jeremiah the prophet said, but it was fulfilled, and in fulfillment, God stirs up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. This stirring up of his spirit is is an important consideration. And he issues a really remarkable decree saying that I've been called by God to restore his temple. It reminds us, and I think God is teaching us here, we must remember here in our day, in our time, that the heart, the soul of the king is in the hand of God. It says to us that any adverse policy that is passed against Christians in this world, any persecution that is visited upon God's people is permitted by God. He steers the heart of the king. And it means that we must pray. It means that we must trust. But it also means that there is no place in our mouths for rage or fear. There's way too many Christians that fill their mouths with rage against the leaders of this world. And way too many hearts that are filled with dread fear of what people will do to us. There is no one that will ever touch one of God's people apart from His sovereign purpose. We can rest in that. Does He allow His people to suffer persecution? Yes. He told us this. It's not false advertising. They suffer throughout the world but no leader will ever thwart the purpose of God. I need a leader, says God, I think, with breaking heart to discipline my people. And I'll get Babylon to do it. And boy, did they do it. They devastated Jerusalem. 
but I now need a leader to invite my people back into my embrace and to say the discipline's over for now. It's time to move on. And I'll take Cyrus. Before he's even born, I'll name him, I'll lay out the plan, and I'll use him to build my temple again. No place for rage. No place for fear. Just place for trust in a sovereign God who steers this universe. And is never asleep at the wheel. Verse 3 reads, Whoever is among you, this decree of Cyrus, of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Now what on earth is happening here? It's a stunning reversal of fortunes. Babylon conquered Judah destroyed the temple, absconded with its holy vessels used in worship, and carted off the majority of Israelites to Babylon. Cyrus comes to power and enacts a radically different policy. We see him being steered by God here. Cyrus was as capable a politician as he was a general. And ruling now this vast empire, he realized it would be wise if he would permit captive nations to worship their local deities. This was a policy of his. Don't read this and say, well, this is just God working just for his people. No, Cyrus is doing this with all conquered nations. He's restoring temples. He's sending back vessels that have been brought back to Babylon by the Babylonians. And in the process of it all, he's getting a lot of votes. People really like this. They really appreciate this. He's respecting the gods of the lands. And for his part, Cyrus would say, I am the worshiper of your God. What he's saying here about God, he probably is getting from the Israelites the way that he refers to him and names him, the respect that he evidences to God. He does the same with Marduk, the god of the Babylonians, says, I'm a worshiper of Marduk. He's a worshiper of everybody. He was appeasing everyone, the great ecumenicist has arrived. He determined the best policy was to let people do what they wanted to do in the realm of religion. They would honor him for it, and he'd get the kickback of all the gods would be on his side. They would appreciate what he had done to restore their fortunes in their lands that they had lost. The worshipers were happy. The gods are appeased and left to rule their territories and everybody blesses Cyrus. So as a thoroughgoing pagan, he plays everyone's game and hopes to thereby win. But you'll notice here, his true heart comes out when he says that God is the God who is in Jerusalem. And that, says Cyrus, is precisely where I want him to stay. Happy in his temple, blessing me when I'm in the land and leaving me alone at all other times. Nonetheless, this pagan king, following this new policy, we notice here that his heart is stirred. The Lord stirs up the spirit of Cyrus that demonstrates again the divine hand. In Cyrus's mind, the God of Israel was a small g God. His assigned territory, Jerusalem. But Cyrus learned, learning to say all the right things about God with no knowledge of who God truly is, is really exercising his rebellion against God. Yet the Lord stirs his heart to be oriented this way, and he says that whoever is among you of all his people, that is any Jew living in the newly formed Persian Empire, can go back you want to return return well how are you going to fund that cyrus that's going to take some money verse four he's got a plan and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns i believe that's a reference to israelites they've survived babylonian capture 
whatever place he sojourns, wherever he is in the Persian Empire, let it be assisted by the men of this place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Anyone's free to go, not forced to, but you're free to go back, you're free to resettle Jerusalem, and we, I will give you the freedom to ask people for financial support. So they went on deputation. And they made some money to get their way to Jerusalem and to rebuild the house of God. That's foreshadowing. It's a very important part of this book, the rebuilding of the house of God. It's not going to happen quickly, but God's at work. And the Persians are helping defray the construction costs for rebuilding the temple. Now what, what we're seeing, this is just a quick sideline, and we'll come back to it, but this, what we're seeing I think is worthy of stopping here and noting. The author compiles secular documents and he draws from them even quoting them. If you have the idea that people kind of sat there at a desk in a semi-trance and God sort of dictated words to them, and they didn't need to really work at it because God knows everything, and He's talking to them, telling them exactly what to write down. You really have a twisted view of what inspiration is, how it works. God superintends the process such that the biblical authors use their minds and their research capacities by which God assures that the words written are His words, exactly what He wants to communicate. But as we've referenced Isaiah, there is direct revelation that says that Isaiah, or that says that Cyrus will defeat the Babylonians when it, before he's long before he's born. But on the other hand, we see evidence such as this as a man sitting down with documents, drawing from those documents, putting them together. God doesn't speak it from the sky. He has to read the text in front of him, and he quotes Cyrus. Back to the text in verse 5, we see the response of God's people. So this decree of Cyrus is given, and then verse 5, the response. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, significant divisions within Israel. There's order already developing. There's an orientation here toward the temple. But it's everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. You can't miss that phrase, can you? God stirred up their spirit. Just like he stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, he's putting the two together, the pagan king and Israelites who say, I want to go back to the land. It wasn't a habitable place. It was a very difficult place to live. But God put it in the heart of some to go there and to reestablish the presence of God's people in his temple in Jerusalem. So Cyrus releases anyone who desires to go but only a remnant returns. A much smaller, purer people returning to the promised land. Verse 6, And all who were about them, that is those living around them, aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. All who were about them, whether Jews or Gentiles, I would take that phrase, provided supplies for the journey, for settling in, and for reconstruction of the temple. Now, just stop a moment and say, does that remind you of something? The Israelites on a journey being supplied by the people where they've been. There is clearly here a reprisal of the Exodus theme. By recounting the story this way, the author seems to purposefully echo the great event where Israel went up out of Egypt to the promised land and were supplied by, at that point, their captors. Notice Exodus 12, 35 and 36, the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. They have something of the same theme taking place here. 
the nation again going up to the promised land supported by the people of the land that they are leaving. Verse 7, Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Here's those vessels again. Very broad Hebrew word speaking of all types of things involved in temple worship. In God's covenant with Israel, the law forbids the creation of idols. And when you go into another land and you conquer that land, you can take their gods home and put them in the temple of your God. You can grab all of their idols and bring them there. Israel doesn't have any such idols. What Israel has is vessels involved in the worship of God, but it's those vessels that are taken captive. An amazing thing happens here. Some of them likely destroyed. There seem to be some indications of that. Some of the larger pieces chopped up and perhaps melted down by this point in Babylon's history, but many of these vessels survived and were placed in the temples of the Babylonian kings as trophies of war. They were there in the Babylonian temples to say that the God who is in Israel is impotent against us. We beat him. And here's his vessels. You can see them right here. They're in our temple. It's amazing in the hand of God and the providence of God that these vessels are not destroyed, but they continue to exist as a reminder that God was once worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem, and he will be again. Can you imagine this moment as they're bringing out these vessels out of the temple of some Babylonian god, perhaps Marduk, and they're bringing them into the light of day and handing them over to the Israelites? This is an amazing turn of events. These are not merely antiques. The Israelites were holding salvation history in their hands. They were touching the continuity of what God had done for His people during the monarchy and what He would now do through them. For now, God's fatherly discipline was over. It was time again to ascend Zion and rebuild the temple. This was nothing other than a gift of God's grace. It's a small point, but just to stress it, Cyrus brought out these vessels, and you see down below the, that Nebuchadnezzar had carried them away. Those are the same, that's the same Hebrew word. Same Hebrew word. So brought out and carried away. Nebuchadnezzar had these vessels carried out of God's temple in Jerusalem, and now Cyrus is having them carried out of the Babylonians' temple for a return trip to Jerusalem. Israel was rising from the ashes again. Cyrus, verse 8, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithradath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, incenses burned in them, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazzar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Even the critics of Scripture admit that the author here has a text before him, has an official document before him counting these treasures that are now on their way back to Jerusalem. Sheshbazzar, we don't know who he is, a mysterious person, but he's a prince. Doesn't, it just means ruler here, not some dynastic title, because the monarchy is over. But Sheshbazzar is commissioned to convey these vessels, probably including large meat forks and knives and bowls and censers and incense and 
for incense and goblets and those kinds of things used at the temple. He is to convey them back to the land. And notice the phrase at the end of verse 11, that they were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. God's people are again on the move. Once again, they depart a nation that held them captive. Once again, they carry gifts from that nation that they're leaving. And once again, they are on their way to enter the promised land, eventually to build God's temple on the Mount Jerusalem. It's a dramatic transition. The monarchy is over. There would be no throne constructed for a new king of Judah. Solomon's palace was in ruins and it would not be rebuilt. But the vessels were in Jewish hands once again. The priests of Abraham's offspring were alive and well. It was time to head back to the land God had promised to His people. God the Father smiled and drew Israel into His arms and said, the discipline for now is over. The lesson has been learned. I love you. I love you. You will be my distinctive people. We need to understand and not draw the wrong conclusion here. This is not merely Israel getting her way. And this wonderful development where Israel now can have what she wants. This was nothing short of a new exodus event in which the restoration of the temple was part of the end game in God's sovereign plan. The temple would be rebuilt. Think of it as, as Israel's moving out of Babylon back to the promised land. It's a new world. There's a new power, Persia. There's a new people that are heading back to this land. Rising from the ashes, Israel returns to the land a humbled people, a much smaller people but a more purified body. During the monarchy, Israel's preservation involved becoming a holy people because the challenge was resisting amalgamation with the Canaanites. And we saw in the book of 2 Chronicles how the Israelites did with that. Not very well. The, the pressure from the world was the kind of pressure that said, please join us. Come into our company. Worship at our altars. Honor our gods. Israel did not do well with that. Now the day is totally changed. From here on out, the pressure from the world will not be come and join us. It will be, we want to kill you. We want to take you out. We hate you. We despise you. We want you gone. That's the pressure Israel will now face in the land of promise. Will she survive Will she continue forward? There's absolutely nothing in the statistics that would indicate she will. Just a small handful of people that don't bother Cyrus one bit. But a people who goes back according to the purposes of God, who steers the heart of the king wherever he wills. Israel would never again fight with idolatry, at least not the kind of idolatry that brought them down in the land. They got it. The discipline worked. There is one God. He is the ruler of heaven and earth. There are no other gods but Yahweh. They got it. And knowing that this God would never accept worship by images, they became people of the book. The book that was lost, remember, as we looked at the end of the book of Second Chronicles. The book that was lost. But the book that was found and now became a very heart of who they were and how they responded to God. And as we look back on it, we can see that God all along is not an abusive disciplinarian. What we see as Israel comes out, as it rises out of the ashes, is Psalm 23 at work. Israel could say as a nation, the Lord is my shepherd. I will not be in want. 
She was cared for in Babylon. Her soul had been restored. God's disciplinary rod had fallen on his flock, but his staff had rescued her. He had prepared a table for his people in the land of Babylon. Esther became queen, for crying out loud. And they did okay there. But what Israel could now say is that surely goodness and mercy will track us down all of our lives. God is good. He is faithful. And He loves us. We also see in this narrative how God's sovereign power operates. Israel was a nobody, an afterthought, a footnote on the page of history. Who cared about the Israelites, the people God had chosen? No one. It was Persia, Babylon, Egypt. These were the great powers. These were the elephants stomping around. But what we see is how God works. Israel was the apple of his eye through it all. And Cyrus is a great conqueror? Yes, indeed. And Cyrus delivers a decree? Yes, he does. It affects all the people he's conquered. But God is orchestrating it all such that his people are going to go back and build the temple again. And they are going to restore worship there. And so as we look ahead, we see God at work strategizing. The monarchy is gone. But we ask, is it gone forever? No, the long story of failed kings left Israel longing for one who would fulfill the messianic prophecies. Perhaps Sheshbazzar would become that king. What we know, of course, historically, is that there's a cycle of failure, and Israel will again require severe discipline, and more destruction will come, and the kingdom will falter. If you remember back a few weeks, it's that picture of the ocean coming up and just sloshing over the sandcastle time after time after time, fighting away the sin, fighting away the battle, the people falling, sinning, being restored. The battle just continues in this fallen world, and we get weary of it. But we need to remember that this is where God is going. We're rising up. We're going back up, and this theme of going back up to Jerusalem is pervasive in our lives for those of us even now who know this Messiah and have been rescued by Him. Isaiah chapter 2. I wish I had 32-year-old eyes, but I'm going to try <laughs> from here. That's what happens when you get poetry on there and don't create another slide. But I'll try it. Here it goes. It shall come to pass. Now think of this. The going up to Jerusalem. The ascending there. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come. And they'll say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They won't judge between themselves. They won't settle the disputes on their own. But He, the Messiah, the King in Jerusalem, will settle these disputes such that they beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Because there will be one kingdom and one king who will rule in righteousness forever. The story of humanity, the story of God's people is a continuing forward to rise up as we find it at that call at the end of 2 Chronicles, let us go up. Let us ascend 
It reminds us of those psalms of ascent and the pilgrims of Israel heading up to Jerusalem. And we see here perhaps even topographical changes in the future prophesied that this hill will be made even more prominent than it is. And this really is where our little stories again lock into the grander mission. This is what God is doing through all of the sin and the destruction of nations and the travails of this world. He is working to bring the nations to the hill. To this place where Messiah will reign. That's the longing in the heart of God's people today. For those who have come to trust and know that Jesus Christ was that Messiah, that King who was sent, who have come to place their faith in His death to pay the penalty of our sins, in His resurrection power, it is to this King and on this hill that we look and we filter everything that's happening in light of this grand motion of God to bring His people back and to seat His King on the throne who will rule in righteousness and justice and honor and grace. And so in our little lives that lock into this grander story, there is a smooth locking in. The gears mesh. When we understand this purpose, we understand this history, it helps us to understand our own history. Sin brings us down. It brings the warning of God, and sin always ends in misery and trial and discipline. God has said that indeed to us. If there's no discipline in your life, there's no trial in your life, there's no challenge or difficulty that is being brought to you, you're not God's child. He disciplines His children. But as He disciplines us, as we deal with sin, as we continue to kill it and set it aside and trust Him for His grace, He draws us back into His embrace. And He welcomes and encourages and loves us. Why is God like this? We get just a glimpse of it in the lives of parents. With children, there is sin after sin after failure, after failure, after disobedience, after disobedience, after selfish display, after selfish display. And there is a consistent standing up against that way that is always coupled with a gracious embrace. And let's keep going. And of course, in our homes, those parents are just as sinful and just as failure, just as many failures in their life. But with God, we have a sinless being, our Father, who unrelentingly forgives and comforts and strengthens and puts us back on our feet after having us over his knee and says, let's go back at it. Not in your own strength, in your own power, but in mine, trusting me as your Father, let's keep at it. Setting sin aside, moving up, and heading where we're heading. The rule of Christ from Jerusalem's throne. Let's pray. Father, I pray by your mercies that you would take this message that we have seen, this revelation of who you are, and that you would permit us in our weakness to understand its significance to each one of us personally and its significance to who we are as a church, and that we would realize we come here and we stand rooted with thousands of years of historical precedent and purpose. We sit here, we identify here, we join our lives together with the people of God from the ages past. 
And now as the Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ, the Messiah, for whom you have prepared this world through your, your prophets, and whom you have demonstrated as King of kings and Lord of lords by his conquest of death, we come here in light of that message to you as our Father. And it is emotional for me as I look into the faces of those here who are under your discipline. Perhaps not for direct sin in any way, but just suffering the consequences of a fallen world. We do face those trials and those heartaches, and I pray that you'd help us to endure for all of us as we sin and reap the rewards of that, the fruit of it. We thank you that you're a God who comforts, forgives, and draws us back in. You're not a pushover father who fails to discipline his children. You warn, you rebuke, and you discipline. But you do so for our eternal benefit. And in this we rest. And I pray for those that are here in that midst of suffering and trial and difficulty that you would help them to put their confidence and their trust in your sovereign hand and in the love of your heart to draw us back and to comfort us in your arms. We thank you that this is the God who you are. We thank you that you've revealed yourself this way. And when we think of this grand mission of salvation, I pray there would not be anyone here who does not recognize the call, the appeal to respond in faith to Christ crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins. I pray that they'd embrace that today. You would open eyes and continue to minister your word to each one of us uniquely. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please stand with me and let's consider in silence for just a few moments God's word for us.